Once upon a time, and this is a true story, I know a lot of stories that begin with once upon a time are usually the stuff of fantasy. But once upon a time, I had a parishioner come to me, and he was a little upset. Well, what else is new? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway. This parishioner was very upset about the fact that they couldn't understand something. They'd been an Anglican their whole lives, and they could not understand why, why are the Psalms part of our worship as Anglicans? He said they are the most dreadful part of the service. You know that long psalm that we just did, the long back and forth, the responsive reading? He said that is absolutely ridiculous. That has no place in a modern, relevant church service. It's boring. It has no place in our worship. And so his question was, would I be willing to omit those psalms from our worship? I didn't know what to say because I'd never had a request like that sort of thing. Normally the request I get is more praise music, less praise music, longer preaching, shorter preaching, that sort of thing. But I'd never had a request like this. Eliminate the psalms. And it was a puzzling request because as Anglicans we know that the psalms form kind of the backbone of our worship in some ways. This goes back to the earliest traditions of the church, right? We begin our service with what's called the introit, the psalms that we say at the beginning, the responsive reading. It's meant to set the stage or the tone for our worship. It's meant to remind us that we come before God as God's people to sing his praises, to hear his word, to receive his gifts. And of course, we normally have the gradual, which is between the epistle reading and the gospel reading, which we forego today in light of the, um, the psalm reading that we did. Again, the point of the gradual psalm is to set the stage for the gospel reading, to help us to attune ourselves by the words of the psalms to understand what we are about to hear. It helps set the frame, or set the framework. In our Anglican uh, pattern of worship, the pattern of morning and evening prayer, the Psalms in their entirety, a whole, all 150 of them, are said in the course of either 30 days or 60 days. Indeed, our Benedictine sisters and brothers who have taken monastic vows will say the entirety of the, psalm, uh, the book of Psalms in one week. That's a lot, especially when you get to Psalm 119. That really, really long one that's like 174 verses. So if you thought today was long, just be happy I didn't put that one in. And so the request was befuddling for me. I couldn't figure out why. But then I thought about it, and then I'll have Judy put the screen up. And this is with apologies to Carly Simon. Not to Warren Beatty, because, yeah. You probably think this psalm is about you. And the realization dawned on me that the reason this request to eliminate the Psalms came from this place, that the Psalms for this individual had no relevance for him personally. There was no purchase on his life. It didn't matter to him because they didn't have anything to say to him. They were just long, boring poems from thousands of years ago. And on the one hand, we might be sympathetic with that request, right? Like, the Psalms are old. 
And they might be a bit boring at times to us because they're not, we don't say them in their original language, which is Hebrew. And so without knowing Hebrew, we miss the nuances of what's going on. Poetry as in and of itself is already a difficult genre of literature um, to understand for the most part. And so it makes sense maybe to you that this request to eliminate the Psalms altogether seems reasonable. Right? We're not really into poetry, we're especially not into Hebrew poetry. What would it have to say to us today? But so too go often our understanding of the worship of the church. That if it doesn't fit our own personal desires and wishes and tastes, that we have no use for it. The usefulness of the worship of the church only is valuable in our minds if it corresponds to the way I like things to be done. But then we run into the problem I bet you think this psalm is about you. I bet you think the worship of the church is about you. But it's not. And that's where we get off on the wrong foot with our understanding of the psalms, with our understanding of the church's worship. The psalms have been and continue to be the backbone of Christian worship and indeed of Jewish worship. The psalms of David, the psalms that are collected in the book of Psalms, the majority of which David wrote, but he's not the only one, have shaped Christian imaginations and hearts for so long. Part of the reason I think we are not familiar with the depth and the richness of the Psalms is because we all think they are happy, clappy, praise Jesus, praise, I mean, praise the Lord kind of thing, and how many times do we really need to have that? We get the point, okay? We can move on and find something better something that's a little bit more singable, something that's a little bit more relatable. But the fact is, as I've said, the Psalms have been our original prayer book and hymn book for 2,000 years and a history that goes beyond that into the lives of our Jewish brothers and sisters. And so we are going to embark in the next five weeks on a reflection on the place of the Psalms, not just in our corporate worship as the body of Christ, but in the individual life of faith. And one of the things we're going to do is the lay readers are going to be preaching on psalms that have an impact in their own lives. Not in the way in the meme expresses about this psalm being about them, but in the way how it's about all of us in our own lives. But how can the psalms be relevant to us if they're not really about us, you may be asking. Doesn't that kind of undermine the whole purpose? Well, the reality is, because the Psalms have that powerful formative, formative um, uh, scope, an imaginative scope in the life of the church, we look to Christ as the exemplar of how to understand the Psalms. The words of the Psalms were on Jesus' lips. From a young boy worshiping at the synagogue in Nazareth, to the songs and the choruses that he would join with the pilgrims as they made their way yearly to the Passover in Jerusalem, singing and reciting these psalms. Jesus in his preaching ministry would have the psalms on his lips, not always directly quoting, but definitely implying very clearly the life and the words of the psalms. It's the songbook that all people would have known, the playlist that everyone would have been familiar with in that time and place. And of course, probably most infamously, the words of the Psalms are on Jesus' lips 
as he hangs from the cross and he quotes from Psalm 22, which we read at every Good Friday service. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the Psalms are not just about the heights of human praise and feeling happy and wondrously joyful and wanting to sing unto the Lord. The Psalms are also about the depths of human experience, which goes all the way down to the gates and the shades of Sheol, the grave, the experience of God forsakenness. But the only way that these experiences make sense is to read them through and with Jesus. The Psalms are not about you and I. The Psalms are first and foremost about Jesus Christ, about singing his praises, about understanding who he is and what he has come to do. But because the Psalms are about Jesus Christ, they are therefore about you and I. But we have to read them as under pertaining to Jesus first, before we can understand them how they pertain to you and I. By way of example, today we read Psalm 104, a beautiful psalm kind of cataloging the fullness of creation, the beauty and the wonder and delight of all that God has created. It's a wonderful psalm, right? And it kind of gets to the point where you're thinking, okay, we get the point. Can you speed it up a little bit? Yes, the trees and the mountains are wonderful. Yeah, yada, yada, yada. Okay. What does that have to do with our reading for today? The well-known story of Jesus' first miracle where he goes to a wedding and where he is turning water into wine. There is a direct connection, and the direct connection is this. What do we see in Genesis 1 and 2? We see God creating everything that is by speaking it. By his word, he speaks all things into creation. We see him placing a man and a woman. It's a wedding. Adam and Eve are married. There's no ceremony that's described in the Bible, but the implication is very clear. So seeing the resonance with John 2 is not too much of a stretch, right? Jesus is now at a wedding. It harkens back to that original wedding back in the garden of Adam and Eve. But there's something even more fundamental that makes this connection between creation and the beginning and what Jesus is doing all the more fundamental. How does Jesus, uh, sorry, how does God describe creation in the, after the first five days of creation? He says, it is good. It is good. Not it's so-so, not wow, this is the best thing ever. It is good. And a good God would be able to say that because it reflects his imagehood. It, it, it corresponds with how he has designed and put these things together. What does the ruler of the feast call the wine that Jesus has made? He says, it is good. It's good wine. And he says, most of the time, people bring the good wine out first. People get drunk, and then you bring out the dregs because people can't taste it anyway because they're high on life and wine. But in this case, they brought out the good wine, but Jesus brings out the better wine. He brings out the wine of the new creation. He says, this is my blood of the new covenant on that Passover feast in which we celebrate the Eucharistic body and blood of Christ. 
See, God makes things good. And through his son, Jesus Christ, he takes what is good and he makes it better. Sometimes good is good enough. But for a God who is nothing but plenteousness and fullness and wholeness and holiness, good is never good enough. Not in the sense that good and not as good enough is like beating ourselves up over this, but that good is always going to be made into something more, something better. Water is good. We need water to survive. Not just to slake our thirst, but our whole bodies are largely made up of water. The atmosphere, we need water. We know what what happens when things are a little bit dry. Our bodies dry out, we need a humidifier. We need that moisture in our bodies. Water is good. But wine, the wine that Christ brings is better. You see, so often we content ourselves with the merely good. And it's good, as we see in Psalm 104, to delight in the goodness that God has given, to give thanks for the gifts that we have. But we cannot be satisfied with the merely good because what Christ has come is to give us something better, to take what is good and to fulfill it with his presence, to take what is good and to make it his own again. We know the story of what happened with Adam and Eve. They took God's goodness and they broke it. They wrecked it. But God says, I will not let that stand in the way of wrecking the goodness of what I have made. Death will not destroy. Sin will not get the last word. I will fix it. And I will make it even better than it was before. So in Psalm 104, we see that, that great hymn to creation, but through the lens of Jesus Christ, we understand that the good is being made better, that we are a new creation, that we are part of that newness that God is bringing to us through his death and resurrection. So as we celebrate the feast, this wedding feast of the lamb to which we are invited, we are reminded that God takes ordinary good things like bread and wine, and fills them with himself, that God takes ordinary good things like you and me and fills them with himself, overflowing with his goodness, with his light, and with his life. This is the beginning of the miracles. In the beginning, God created in the heavens and the earth the beginning of the miracles of the new life of the new covenant that is made to us through Jesus Christ. So my friends, let us grab hold of this new life each and every day, giving thanks for the goodness, but giving thanks for what God is doing with what is already good and making it better through his very life. Thanks be to God.